Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've met us here. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has even prompted what you desire from us today in worship and praise. And Father, I depend absolutely and completely on you as we open your word. Holy Spirit, manifest yourself as the teacher of edifying the assembly, the congregation of God's people, edifying us for the very service you have in store for us, the things you have prepared for us to do. We depend on it, Father. We trust you in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in James chapter 4 today. Interesting little chapter. And I'm just going to go ahead and read through the whole thing in NIV, Tom, if you don't mind. Uh, following along. Pretty short chapter. Verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make some money. Why? 
You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. There's a lot of stuff in this chapter. Several well and often quoted, Hey, look at you. <laughs> Good to see you, sister. <laughs> That's a pleasant sight to see when I looked up. Yeah. <laughs> What was the last part of chapter 3? What, what was the last thing in chapter 3? Do you remember uh, how that ended? And the fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. And then the very next sentence, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? These are not two separate pieces of information. Okay, this is a one big long letter. We divide it up in chapters and verses for our own own uh, benefit. Sometimes I think they divided them incorrectly because that those two things ought to be side by side. Okay, but so we have to make sure we understand that. Where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? He's talking to the the, the dispersed believers the Jews who had been converted and dispersed out of Jerusalem, scattered. That's who this letter was written to first. But he's also talking to us right now today individually, just like he was talking to them, because there are still conflicts and quarrels among us in the church. And it ought not be, but it is, nonstop, every day. And it's a sad thing in God's perspective and in ours, if we're honest about it. And he says, where does it come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside you? So what goes on inside of us, the battles, the things that we have conflicts about in ourselves, the, the never-ending war between spirit and soul manifests itself in quarrels among ourselves. It can't help but do that. If we're not at peace in here, we can't be at peace out here. That's what he says. You desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, King James says you have not because you ask not. I always call that Arthur's special scripture. Because he believes it. And it's, you know, it's an interesting place to stick, stick this particular uh, truth. 
And I was quoting it one time to a good friend who's now gone. Uh, he was Church Christ guy. So he wasn't always all that hopeful, sadly to say. I mean, he really wasn't. I really believe uh, he ended up taking his own life, and, and I believe part of that was because, you know, it was not part of it. It was all because of lack of hope in his situation. And a very, very sad thing for me to come to that realization about him and where he was. But I would say, you have not because you ask not. And he would say, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. He would go ahead and you know give me the next next verse, the less hopeful one, <laughs> you know, like pointing out our, our error. You ask in NAT it says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, and this is how it's wrong. So you can spend it on your passions. This whole uh, several several sections here that James is presenting, he's presenting these contrasts between war and peace, between friend and enemy, between pride and humility. Like, see this, see this, see this. You know, look at look at, look at them side by side and be honest about it. So he's even talking about what happens in prayer. First he says you don't have it because you don't ask. But then the contrast to that is when you do ask wrongly, that's when you don't receive. I know people that get all locked up, uh, you know, wondering if what they're praying for is their own desire or should I pray about it because I really, I want a new car, but, you know, I don't know that God wants me to have one, you know, whatever. And I say new car because that's just, you know, one of those things people always use as an example, talking about prayer and asking for something. What is the purpose of the prayer? What is it in the end? Always looking toward the end of things. What is it that we are praying? Why are we praying for this thing? And what is the end result? Because he says you pray wrongly, you ask wrongly, because you're planning to spend it on your own passions. Whatever it is you're asking for. That you're, it's for your benefit. God is all about glorifying himself in us. Not glorifying us in the earth. Okay? If we could just get that right and quit thinking it's all about us feeling good and us looking good, but all about glorifying our God and Father, then we would pray not wrongly, but correctly, righteously, fervently. What what prayers are answered? The fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman. The fervent Prayer of a righteous one. That doesn't leave any room for wrongly praying. If you come in righteousness under the blood of Christ and fervently ask God for something that's going to glorify Him, that is not wrongly asking. That's the way you pray. You pray that you want Him glorified in whatever you ask for. I wrote, our prayers should be full of faith and fervency, not less than selfish desire. Full of faith and fervency, 
Think about that every time you bow your head. If we don't ask in faith, don't ask. If we don't ask believing, don't ask. So come in faith and fervently ask God in prayer. And, you know, I've got to always quote Matthew Henry a time or two. If we seek anything that we may serve God with, we may expect he will either give us what we seek or give us hearts to be content without it. Well, God, but I want that first one. I want what I ask for. But he will also make us content without it if that's his will. And give opportunities of serving and glorifying him in some other way. We don't always get it right, but when we come with faith and fervency, he's going to do some of that work. If it's not in his plan, he's going to make it clear and and change our hearts and, and say, here's what I prefer that you do. This is my plan for you, and here's the contentment that comes with being my will. If you can give up what you thought you wanted and needed and just hear what I have for you and know that it's the best possible thing, there's no other, no other possibility when God gives us anything, it's the best there is for us to have. If we can just get there, just get there and be content with or without whatever His will is. Verse 4, adulterers. That's not talking about earthly adulterers. It's talking about people who have turned and given themselves to another God. Because we are told, it's very clear in Scripture, that we are the bride of Christ. And when we go seek another, we are adulterers in the Spirit. When we give ourselves to another or seek out another, we are adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world, that means seeking out some other, God or desire means hostility toward God. There is, I've said this over and over many, many times it's taught up here, there's no neutral. There's no neutral. I just don't want to be for the devil or for God. I just want to be my own man and be okay. I'm sorry, it's not possible. There are two, two gears, for God or for Satan. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. Cannot. It says that right there. Friendship with the world means hostility toward God. So whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Wow. Verse 5 speaks to a little bit of what, about what Arthur brought up during prayer and then during worship. Or do you think the Scripture means nothing when it says, the Spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning? The Spirit that God caused to live within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Has an envious yearning. By the way, he says, Scripture says that that is not a quote from any Old Testament Scripture that we have in the canon. But it lines up with a whole bunch of what we know. Because God said from the very beginning, what kind of God is he? I am a jealous God. Have no other God before me. I am a jealous God. And he says it in many different ways. 
And if he is a jealous God, what spirit is it that lives, us, lives, with, lives within us? It is his Holy Spirit. If it's his spirit, it is a jealous one. That's what he's saying here. It lines up, even though it's not an exact, you know, we can't find the exact quote. The spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. It's jealous for us. Envious yearning. It desires our full attention. But he gives us greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility uh, is a hard place to get to for a lot of people. The world, our society, does not teach us to be humble. It just doesn't. It teaches us to be self-sufficient. You know, what is one of the uh, uh, ways that successful people are described that kind of speaks to that, I think, is when you say, he's a self-made man. That is a lie. Lie. Absolute lie. Self-made man. I don't want to be a self-made man. I want to be a man made by God in his image and raised up for his purpose. He gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. We, uh, <laughs> that, that's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle for me. I believe it's an ongoing battle for many of us. But then in seven, so submit to God. Come and place yourself under His rule. Call yourself a citizen of the kingdom of God and acknowledge who the king of that kingdom is. And say, I'm a citizen, a servant of the Most High. And that is how I will live. That's what it means to submit to God. Put everything under His authority. Everything is under His authority anyway, but when we acknowledge and say, I'm not even going to put my hands on it, I'm going to give it all to you, depend on your direction, depend on your sovereignty in my life. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's often quoted, isn't it? If you're not submitted to God and you resist the devil, how well does that work? Can you do one without the other? I don't think so. I believe these two are put side by side for a reason. Submit to God and then resist the devil. It comes as a package. Come under God and then say, Satan, get behind me. Resist him and all of his tricks and his ways. When God reveals 
Satan schemes to us, it, and we, we see it and we acknowledge it and say that's, that's the hand of Satan, it removes the power of it from Satan. It's like he leaves the room and goes and makes another plan. <laughs> it doesn't give up. But in the moment, in that, in that attack, in that effort of his, subtle or overt, it doesn't matter when we submit to God and God then reveals some things to us and, and says, all right, here's the way it is, and you see, this, you see the attack, you see the invasion, you see the, the hand of Satan coming against you. All you have to do is resist it say, I, I see that's who that is. And just like Jesus said to Peter, Satan, get behind me. That authority is real. It is real. When we resist the devil, he'll flee when we're submitted to God. This next couple of uh, verses, to me, uh, oh, let me, let me just point this out. It doesn't, that, that scripture doesn't say, go to war and defeat Satan. Does it? Why? He's already defeated. When we think it's our job to defeat him, we are wasting our energy and he has won in, in that little realm, taking our energy and our attention when we think it's up to us to defeat him. No, it says resist him. And remember, Christ has already won the victory. He has already defeated Satan. He has already defeated death. All of that has been done. And we are to remember remember this, pronounce it, and announce it. Say it out loud. Satan, you've got no place. You're defeated. I resist you. Say it out loud. Saying stuff out loud is a big deal. And at the end of this, this chapter, I'm going to emphasize that some more. Saying it out loud. It's not like you can't believe something in your heart and it's really belief and it's really real. But when you say it out loud, many things in the Scripture talk about saying this or saying that. That's what we're going to get to in a minute. So just say so. The enemy has been defeated. Death couldn't hold him down. Some, some song like that, right? All right, so this next couple of scriptures is kind of written, to me, kind of in, in backward order. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep to get, turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into, the, into despair. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. I'm thinking, when you're not near to God, you've got to clean your hands up, get your hands off stuff it shouldn't be on, purify your heart, turn it toward God, devote yourself to Him, and then draw near. God will not draw near to sin. When all the sin of all mankind was placed on Jesus... What did God have to do? He had to turn his back on his own son. God will, will not and cannot draw near to sin. He will draw near to us as we draw near to him after we have purified our hearts, turned it toward him, 
cleanse our hearts, claim the blood of Christ over junk in our lives, understood that we're forgiven and that we, we start, we, this just happened to me briefly in the middle of prayer. It's like, it struck me how far from Christ like I am again. It struck me again. And all of a sudden, I was just broken. That's what he means by grieve and mourn and weep. Recognize your need for God. Recognize it and grieve and mourn about how bad, how, how wretched we are, but how hopeful we are in Christ. Quit laughing and start mourning. <laughs> quit, quit being jocular. The jocularity of the world keeps us away from God. Stop laughing when it's not appropriate. Stop laughing to cover your tears. Start crying for God. And humble yourself, it says in 10, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Have some questions. When it says draw near to God, is it easy and quick? In your experience, is it easy and quick? Or is it laborious and lengthy? Is it purely spiritual? Is there some physical requirement? I think there's different ways, different times in our lives, different situations we're in. Sometimes you've got to get on your face physically on the floor and just cry. Or pray, repent, whatever. Other times it's like you just turn your heart and say, Jesus, I need you, and you're there. Sometimes. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's like, i got to get rid of junk. i got to lay this down and remember who, who I am in Christ. Remember that I'm forgiven, and only by His blood can I even enter in, but I can enter in. And by His blood, I can draw near. And God then draws near to me. Can we keep hold of the world and draw near to God at the same time? <laughs> it's like, here God, I, I got my hand on this stuff over here in the world, but I'd really like to touch your heart. Can you get a little closer? Reaching out. Come on, God. You said if I draw near to you, you'd draw near to me. And he said, let go of the world. Let go of that, and then you can draw near. You can't draw near when it's holding you back. Don't let our attachments to the world keep us from that. Because friendship with the world means hostility towards God. Verse 4. In the end of verse 8, it says you double-minded. Thinking two different ways is not the condition God requires of us. He requires us to be single-minded for Him. Verse 11. Do not speak against one another. King James says, speak not evil one of another, 
brothers and sisters. He who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but it's judge. Verse 12, but there is only one who is lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? This, this judging each other stuff really gives a lot of Christians a lot of trouble. We really are supposed to judge fruit. But even if there's sin, is it the person that we judge or the sin? We have to be able to call an apple an apple (laughs) and sin, sin. But don't assign it to the person like they are without hope. That's that judgment we are not to do. God judges our hearts. But to come alongside a brother... By the way, in the beginning it says, do not speak against one another. another." King James, do not speak evil of one another. So there's this, it's kind of a vague area sometimes. Well, can I say something if it's not evil? <laughs> well, yes, if it's truly the truth in love. The truth in love. Two requirements. Is it the truth? That will be God speaking through His Holy Spirit, through you, And in love, it will be God's love for that person manifested through your love for that person. That is not usually where we live. I'm sorry. It's just not. Mankind is not prone to operating in love at that level. So, When it asks questions like, who are you to judge your neighbor? Go back to that humility thing. Let's get humble before God and ask yourself, like the song says, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Get that kind of humility. And then all of a sudden, speaking to your neighbor in any any level of, of judgment gets to be set aside. Let's just consider who we are and not worry so much about who they are. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Keep that in mind, and that keeps us humble. Big shift of gears, it seems like here, but it's not necessarily such a big shift. It just seems like one. In 13... This this always always reminds me of the of the uh, adage, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. I always thought, you know, after I became a Christian, I thought that that is such a sorry way to say that. You mean God is in control of everything but the creek? If He's willing, the creek won't rise. You know, but we just have to. We always have to throw in, in our in our human. Adages, our human way of describing things, it seems like we always throw in stuff that just speaks against the truth. Like, uh, spare the rod, 
spoil the child, that's a lie. That's not what the word says. It says, if you spare the rod, you hate your son. But what did man do to it? Our society and man says, that's harsh. Let's just change it to something that we might feel like we have a choice in. I can, I, it's okay to spoil your child a little bit, so I'm not going gonna, gonna to spare the rod. It's, it's changing the truth, the word of God, to suit something that feels better for us to say. Because who would hate his son? The one that spares the rod? That's what the word says, but I don't like that. So I'm going to alter that. Lord willing in the creek, don't rise. No, just if the Lord wills. Let's stick with that. That's what this next passage is about. And it has to do with what you say about what you're doing. It has to do with where do we give credit? Where do we take our, our direction and who do we credit with the outcome? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this town or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. 14, you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. I thought, I'm going to do some some math about this, some numbers to, to really emphasize this, but it doesn't work very well. Because this is seen, the, the, the most uh, complete view of this is how God sees us and in, the, in our little timeline in, you know, with eternity surrounding us. And that's kind of like trying to do math with infinity involved, you know, the infinite eternity of God. And this little anywhere, you know, 30, 40, 60, 80 years of life that we have. It's nothing compared to infinity. Literally nothing. Mathematically speaking. I'm not going to get into math, but that's, that's what I was thinking. The puff of smoke is not like, like we sit, oh, well, 80 years of smoke, you know, our lives. <laughs> it's like in, in, the, in relation to eternity. That's how we need to consider our plans. But let God lead you. He says, you ought to say instead, it's 15, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it, is guilty of sin. And he's, he's talking, he, he says in 13, come now you who say, you say it, you announce your plans, you share your, your plans, your hopes, whatever, and take credit for them. We're going to go over here, we're going to do this, we're going to make money, and we'll be back. And God was never mentioned. That's the problem. You don't have to say it just like this. You don't have to say, oh, if it's God's will, I'm going to get up tomorrow and go to work. But in all we do, in all we say, it ought to be apparent that we are dependent on Him. Somehow, it ought to be built in. We ought to be that example. 
We should not have to convince somebody we are Christians. We ought to exemplify it by giving him, him credit for all that we say and do, all the profit we make, all the good, all that he sustains us with, the graces that he pours into us, the blessings that he pours out on us. And we should always walk away where someone has heard our conversation and they say, wow, God has been good to them. They shouldn't say, there's a self-made man. They should say, God has really blessed them. That's the point. Not just in going to a city or doing some business. The planning is not the problem. We are supposed to plan. The problem is, do we acknowledge God in it? The way I wrote it, the issue is whether we acknowledge that it is not our plan outside of God's and that we depend upon him to even have breath in the next moment. When we start talking about, well, next year I'm going to take this vacation, we should at the same time acknowledge that he gives us breath moment by moment. And I believe God's going to bless me with that if it's in his plan and that he blesses me with breath until that time. It may sound a little, you know, like worried so much about death. No, it's just acknowledging the giver of life, not the taker of life, but acknowledging he gives us life day to day. How many people do you know, have you known, especially like in the last year, one day they went in the hospital and they never came home because of this disease. There's a bunch of them. A bunch of them. Not just known, but loved. I even started, uh, not out of fear, but out of, I believe, responsibility acknowledging that tomorrow is not promised to me or to you. And I have a number of responsibilities that nobody else has any interaction with. At my home, at our business, and here in the church. And I decided I better write some of this stuff down so that if tomorrow I'm gone, I won't leave them in a bind. They won't be saying, what was Jimmy thinking? that he didn't tell somebody how this works. And the more responsibility you have, the more you ought to consider that. That if in a blink of an eye you were gone, what would you leave behind? Would you leave behind a well-organized blessing for somebody or a mess for somebody else to clean up? Because we are not promised tomorrow. He's saying it right here. You do not know about tomorrow. You don't have to live in fear. But let's all live in responsibility to God. Let him direct all this. Let him speak to you about this. Some of you are in a position that you need to do that. You need to consider what it is that you would leave 
for your loved ones or anybody, and co-workers, whatever, that would be a mess instead of a blessing. Don't let that be. In 16, he says, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. A man that came here and did a lot of teaching and, and uh, still leads a church out in East Texas once described me as either the most arrogant or the most ignorant man he had ever met. He said that out loud to his church about me. Like, who am I? <laughs> Why are you bringing my name up? And if, I'm, if I want to choose between those two, I want to be ignorant, not arrogant. That's kind of my response to that. I would rather be ignorant than arrogant. But I was some of both. I still am some of both. Hopefully less of both since then. That was like 20 years ago. But can, can someone describe you as arrogant, would they describe you as arrogant? If so, don't boast about it. It says boast, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. I know people that boast about their language that's inappropriate. Well, you know, I do this, and you know, I, I just, I just do that. Just me, boasting in their arrogance. It says it's evil. Whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. When God reveals it to you, He places responsibility on you for it. I know, also know people say, oh, don't tell me. I don't want to be responsible. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell me anymore. Okay, so you want to leave arrogance and go to ignorance. Just stay in ignorance. Don't want either one. I want to be mature and uh, wise and humble. <laughs> and the last thing I'll just say uh, oh, by the way, Job, uh, in Job, the, the tw- from 121 is where this uh, quote comes from. You hear this all the time. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's always, uh, that's about giving credit to God for his sovereignty. He is the one that makes the decisions, and we have to acknowledge that in all of our plans and all of our doing. John Piper uh, said, said it this way about our belief in God's involvement in our life. It is arrogant not to believe with your heart and confess with your lips that ultimately God governs how long you live and what you accomplish. If we don't acknowledge those two things, that God numbers our days and decides what it is we accomplish, it is by his hand, then it is the arrogance that this mentions, and it's sin when we don't acknowledge God's hand in those two things. The numbering of our days 
the blessing of what we put our hand to. I sent this out, uh, I think it was this week, but um, the scripture that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Um, Seeking God is all that he asks for. Do you see the initiation that he's bringing upon us? Seeking is the way to intimacy with God. He initiated a relationship with you at the cross. He said, while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. When we weren't considering him, he died for us. Then his heart yearns for us to come close to him and and desires us to be with him. He goes to prepare a place for us so we can spend eternity with us. Now he wants us to initiate our hearts toward him. So when he initiated the cross and he made it possible for us to enter into his presence, he initiated a relationship with us, if you choose that. But then the rest of the scriptures, and there's a lot of them. I only wrote three of them down here. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. All you've got to do is decide that you want to be with him. And when you make that decision, and when you step closer He's going to come the rest of the way. Why? Because he loves you and wants to be with you. Understand his heart toward you. I'll read you a scripture. This is in Job 8, 5 through 6 out of the Amplified. If you would diligently seek God and implore the compassion and favor of the Almighty, then you are pure and upright. Surely now he will awaken for you and restore your righteous place. He will awaken for you. Psalms 24, 6. This is a generation of those who diligently seek him and require him as their greatest need. Who seek your face even as did Jacob. And then Psalms 27, 8. When when you said, seek my face in prayer and require my presence as your greatest need. My heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek on the authority of your word. Because he has said so. Because he has brought his truth to us, should draw us close to him. 
want us to initiate, want us to take the step, want us to embrace him. Seek, just seek him. And he'll show up. I promise you, I promise you, he promises you. It's a better promise than I got. If you just make a step toward him, he will run toward you. Whatever, whatever he needs. I like what uh, what Jimmy said was, does he come quickly when you ask? Or does he make you tarry on the altar, wailing, saying, come, Lord Jesus? He does both. Whatever he, whatever he wants, I'm willing to give. If you have that kind of heart, whatever he wants, God, you want me to kneel, fall on my face, wail, and ask for your presence? Then remember, I require him because he is my greatest need. That's what I'm going to do. But there are times he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Then all I've got to say is, God, he's there. He's with me because my greatest need is him. So, Father, I just thank you. I I, I want to do this before I I pray. I want you, this is the invitation. I want you to commit to drawing close to him. That's it. Just, God, I will draw close to you. However you decide. So if this is what you want. If you want God, he makes it easy. Just call on my name. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that each one of us find that place where you may be found. And so, Father, I pray that as we seek you, your word promises that you will be found. And so, Father, I thank you. I thank you for these people. I thank you, Father, that they have a yearning for you. Father, let us yearn, Father, out of that jealousy that I don't want anything else because I know you're the provider of life and you're provider of all that I need in this life to carry on. So, Lord, I pray, Father, upon these people, I want you to receive it in the name of Jesus. Receive that spirit of seeking. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And say, Father, I desire you. You are my water. You are my food. You are everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good week.